and thanks for tuning in again this week on Marketing Gets Real. I think you're going to find this week's episode really interesting. This is the first week we've had a marketer from the healthcare tech space. And if you thought our experiences marketing during COVID were challenging, think again. Meg Hoyecki has been a client and a friend for a long time. She has over 15 years experience of marketing in the healthcare space, and she currently serves as vice president of marketing for SOC Telemed. Prior to that, she's led marketing teams at high growth companies, including Cyax Health and Optum. I'm really excited to have Meg here today because she takes a deep dive into trying to launch a BDR team during COVID to the healthcare space. And as we could all imagine, that had to be an extremely difficult task. It's it's difficult in normal times, let alone during COVID. And when you're going to the market, that's probably the most inundated with the experience that's happening in, in our lives. Um, you can imagine that not a lot of people picked up the phone. The The challenge for Meg was that she knew she had a product that could actually help ease their burden. And so it wasn't that she was trying to get in touch with them because she just knew I was got to hit my numbers. I have to sell. She had something that she thought could provide value. The organization could provide value and actually help ease some of the stress that everybody was, was having at the moment. I think the the part that really got me, and I think if everybody could pay attention to it, is when she talks about the learnings and that sometimes as marketers, we're more consumed with checking the boxes of what we're supposed to do versus what's really working and what's what's really moving the dial for us. And so when she took a step back and she looked at it, she had to ask her questions of, was I launching a BDR team at the right time because I was just checking a box? And that's that's difficult for us as marketers, right? And, and I think it was really eye-opening for me, and I hope it is for you as well. Now, Meg and I usually like to talk marketing over margaritas. Unfortunately, we were not able to do that for this conversation. So I'm hoping you can go grab one for yourself before we dive in. Hi, and welcome to another episode of B2B Marketing It's Real. Today we've got Meg with us. And Meg, I'm so excited to have you here. We go way back, right? I was just thinking, you know, we were just chatting. Meg was my margarita partner at uh, B2BMX. We would do all of our strategy and planning in the heat in February <laughs> over margaritas, right? I love it. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> oh, and we're so excited to have you here too, because I think, as I mentioned to you, you're our first marketer and, and salesperson we've had on that really is in the health care space, which I think is really fascinating in today's environment because I'm sure there's been some mistakes and learnings made during this period that's been completely new, especially in your space. So for sure. Yeah. Why don't we start just by telling us a little about your journey, how you got here? Sure. Sounds good. Well, I will start with, I guess, my company for just a quick minute. I'm with uh, SOC Telemed. I uh, lead the marketing team there. And we are a acute telemedicine company. So we are selling our solutions and services into mostly hospitals and health systems, uh, sometimes clinics too. So for the most part, our target audience is hospital executives, a lot of clinical executives like chief medical officers and chief nursing officers. Those are the types of folks that we're trying to get a hold of. I've been in healthcare my entire career, mostly healthcare technology. Healthcare analytics, lots of very cutting edge health tech type of stuff. The past four years has been my first uh, in telemedicine and been a very interesting last couple of years for sure, going through the pandemic 
we actually decided to go public in 2020 because we were a telemedicine offering and we thought we could help folks get the care that they needed remotely without having to put doctors and healthcare workers at risk. We always joked around that telemedicine's the best PPE out there. Can't get COVID <laughs> that is true. Over the video, right? <laughs> so very exciting 2020, going public, growing the marketing and sales team to meet a pretty significant demand for remote healthcare inside hospitals. Love that. I have to ask, Meg, if spending your entire career in healthcare, if you feel like you're practically a doctor, because I watch so many health healthcare <laughs> emergency shows on TV that I'm always saying to my husband, you need to intubate. <laughs> That's so funny. Do you feel like uh, I could be a doctor right now? <laughs> you know, what's funny, I almost feel like the longer that I'm in healthcare, the less I feel like I know how to be a doctor. Fair in enough. Fact, in the past year, we acquired another company that had a whole bunch of service lines that I didn't know anything about. Originally, we were just doing psychiatry, neurology, and critical care. And the new company that we combined with had cardiology, maternal fetal medicine, endocrinology, infectious disease. So all of these new like service lines that I've had to kind of learn the lingo for, and it's like just enough to be dangerous, but... Still, you know, if I'm having a conversation with an MD, I like to have an MD in my room as well. To make yeah, sure I don't say anything completely out of line. Love it's true. That. My sister's an OBGYN, and sometimes I have conversations with her, and I'm like, "Can you talk in English? Like, I, I don't know <laughs> what you're saying right now to me." So, yeah, definitely not in my I world. Love that, so. and I guess yeah. it's good to know there's always learning happening, right? Yeah, you know, no matter what industry that you're in, there's opportunities for growth and learning, which keeps us keeps yeah. us sharp. Yeah. Yes, yeah. for sure. It's funny, a lot of our blog posts that we've been running the last couple of years are based on interviews that we're having with some of our clinician leaders. I always learn a lot about our different service lines and those different specialties through those conversations. I really enjoy kind of taking very technical or very clinical subject matter and kind of making them into something that I could show my mom who's not in healthcare and have her understand what we're doing and and what our value is and how we're, we're providing better care to patients at the end of the day. And that's what we're really trying to do, right, Dana, is help our clients kind of have more human speak, right, as opposed to technology jargon so people can understand. For sure. For so long, it's been about my product and how great I am and the bits and bites of things, and it's starting to really change. And so that's great to hear. Yeah, it really is. And speaking of that, it's funny, one of the kind of learnings in the past couple of years since we've been in this high growth mode was we were selling telemedicine. And I think one of the things we realized in kind of getting to know our customers better and trying to switch from that, hey, look at us, what are we selling to what service and what value are we providing you? We switched that narrative quite a bit from, hey, we're selling telemedicine to hey, I understand you have a shortage of doctors at your hospital and we have a way to help you. And totally different conversation when it starts there. But I think that brings up a good point here, Meg, too, without going off topic too much. But I was on a call yesterday and we were just talking about personas and messaging and somebody was asking me if I had a sample of something. I was like, yeah, but it's old. It's from like two years ago. And any messaging that any of us did two years ago pre-pandemic, I mean, like you're especially in your space, those pain parts are long gone, right? There wasn't this idea of the doctor shortage. Probably. I mean, there's always, I know it was headed towards that, but it wasn't as probably 
in your face as it's become over the last couple of years. And I think that if we're not revisiting that messaging and messaging as a whole right now, I think you're missing the boat because it's just everybody's pain points. What keeps them up at night is so different than it was two years ago, right? Yeah. Three, yeah. almost three. I mean, so. We actually uh, developed a brand new persona last year that didn't even exist. Before the pandemic, I love this stuff. We actually wow. we called our new persona because a lot of our personas we kind of lumped. You know, I know a lot of people do it by title, but we had our clinical titles like the chief medical officer, chief nursing officer, and then we had our more operational titles like the chief operating officer. And certainly, we have a persona for the finance folks as well with like an ROI story. So our new persona we called the new persona the telemedicine guru. And the guru was a persona that we came up with because we noticed that, and we saw this grow like crazy over the pandemic, but there was all sorts of new titles at hospitals. All of a sudden, we were seeing chief innovation officers. We were seeing chief of the digital front door of the hospital. There was directors of telemedicine or chiefs of telemedicine. There's just a whole gamut of new titles of folks that were interested in figuring out how to virtualize healthcare inside the four walls of their hospital. So we kind of came up with this conglomerate persona just to talk to all of those new folks, very new, innovative thinking outside the box on how to deliver care in a different way. Love it. And this is a trend that's going to stay, I think, right? I I mean, that's what that you're reading. Telemedicine is not going to be just a pandemic phenomenon. Yes, that's for sure. It's definitely going to stay around for a while. I think a lot of the press that everyone's read about it over the past couple of years had to do a lot with patient at home. I don't want to go to the doctor's office. I'm worried I might get COVID if I go to the doctor's or the hospital. So I know a lot of people got used to having some of their doctor's visits from home and a lot of people liked it. So I definitely think that's going to stick around. Certainly like this story at SOC Telemed, when we're doing acute care, kind of emergency care inside the hospital, I don't think that's going anywhere either. It really is kind of helping folks work at their highest licensure and building efficiencies in the healthcare system. And pandemic or not, I think there's a huge market for telemedicine. So interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole time savings, right? Like half the time your doctor's appointment lasts 10, 15 minutes, right? And it's like you drive there, you sit and wait, then you wait in the room and you get like when I do a telemedicine appointment, it's really you're done in 15 minutes. It's like I I mean, it's so nice. I mean, for a checkup, it's not obviously for all of it, but yeah, I think it's fantastic. So yeah, it is. It's great to hear those types of stories. I mean, the doctors call it windshield time. I've heard so many stories of, especially in a rural hospital, emergency patient comes in in the middle of the night and they have to call the neurologist and the neurologist puts his pajama pants on and hops in the car and 30 minutes later is at the hospital in the middle of the night because he's on call trying to help a patient who's having a stroke or something versus being able to roll out of bed and get on camera. I mean, think about the time that was saved and sometimes time means better patient care especially with like a neurology issue, for example. That's so interesting. Well, that's so good. So let's jump in because I think you've got some great oh shit moments as Carrie and I like to talk about them. And I think with COVID and healthcare, I'm sure you have tons. And I know when we talked earlier, you had mentioned this idea that you were setting up a BDR team right around COVID time and maybe some not so good moves there and and great learnings from that experience. So why don't you share a little bit about what you were doing? Sure. 
So it's interesting. I've been at the company a little over four years now. And when I started, we had a BDR team. It was reporting to sales at the time. And it's just funny. We've just always had a BDR team. And it's one of those things you kind of just assume that that is the normal of how this company works and how this kind of revenue department works. We had some turnover over the years. And at one point we were down to one person. We decided we were going to outsource it and uh, went through a whole process of training a whole team. It was an offshore team. It was a great learning process, writing all of that scripting and training the team on how to deliver it authentically. Because it's risky having folks calling your prospects and your customers. Like if they screw up or they say something really stupid or a whole bunch of other things that could happen, it's just you lose credibility as a company. So putting the time and effort into that process was great learning to begin with. Outsource BDR team. And then we had an internal person as well who was running who's running our internal program and kind of helping manage the external folks. So that was happening for a little while. The pandemic started. And as you can probably imagine, us trying to get a hold of hospital executives uh, starting in March of 2020 didn't go so well at that point. I mean, honestly, nobody was answering the phone. Nobody was answering the phones. Nobody was answering emails. I mean, there was just nothing. So I remember the CEO that came in to help us go public during 2020, who had decades of healthcare experience running very large companies. He said, Meg, I want you to go look at a fishbone diagram. And I was like, what is he talking about? So I looked it up on Google and you can go look it up to a fishbone diagram. It's a Six Sigma tool and it's really a visualization tool to help you kind of diagnose a problem. And you can imagine, you know, all of the fish bones kind of going down in order. It's like, okay, let's look at the business development program. We have the people. Is there a problem with the people? Is it the message? Is there a problem with the message? Is it the frequency? Is it the target list? You know, you think about all of the different variables that we have as marketers setting up a campaign, no matter what the medium, and you kind of go through each of those steps and try to test, keep everything else as a control and test the variable to see what's working. And we did go through that process. And that was also a great learning experience. And I would recommend anyone doing marketing go through that because it really does show you all of the different variables that can affect the outcomes of a campaign. I guess the learning at the end of the day was we're trying to market to people who are in the middle of a war zone right now. And even if we feel like we felt so strongly that we had a solution that could help them get through this. And it's like, if you could just talk to us, we can help you. I mean, the fact of the matter was, it was like they were in a war zone and it's like, you don't have time to go sit and have a strategic meeting when you are dealing with tents and COVID patients and trailers in the back of the hospital, as we all read about during that year. So it was just about not being able, it was time and responsiveness. We couldn't even get through. So all of those other things on the fishbone diagram didn't really even matter. Like I wrote a beautiful message, you know, I, I wrote all of these messages and voicemails and talking about differentiation from competitors. And it was just falling on deaf ears. I think that's so interesting, Meg, because I always like my husband's in sales and we talk to a lot of salespeople too. And we could do all the marketing in the world. We can do all the sales tactics in the world. And sometimes it just comes down to timing, right? And so it wasn't the right timing, obviously, for what was happening. And at the same point, they had to come around because the timing was going to turn. I'm sure that at some point it switched and they went, 
oh my God, we have to figure out telemedicine now. And so you guys were probably inundated, but it wasn't based on anything we did as marketer and sales yeah. people, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's funny, like one of the, I guess, takeaways that we had as the, the growth team was people will call us when there's a need and we called it, you know, the compelling event. The compelling event could be, I mean, a whole bunch of things, but I, I would say one of the more likely compelling events when somebody calls us is when their uh, specialty group leaves the hospital. And it could be for different reasons. Somebody could be retiring. Somebody could be going on maternity leave. Sometimes physician practices are like, you know what? We're done taking middle of the night call. We're just going to go to clinic hours and go back to bank hours because that's better for our lifestyle. It could be any of those reasons. So the say we'll say it's a neurology group. They go to the hospital and say, yep, we're out 30 days and we're done here. And then the hospital is like, oh, shit, <laughs> we need a neurologist because otherwise that ambulance is going to go on bypass and go to the next hospital. And we're going to lose that patient. We're going to lose that revenue. So that's typically when they call us and they're like, oh, flooring telemedicine. Could you possibly give us a neurologist on demand on your telemedicine platform? So the conversation flipped to how do we get a hold of these people? Because nothing was working to... How do we know when there's a compelling event happening? What indicators can we go investigate to figure this out? So one of the theories was we started going to the hospital job boards. We actually started looking for hospitals that had neurologist openings or were recruiting for that specialty doctor. And we tried to, to go in through HR and say, hey, we know you're looking for a doctor, but have you considered an alternate approach to solving this problem? HR typically wasn't the right path. Like they were like, I don't want to talk to you. Like my job is to go hire a doctor. <laughs> like this is I get paid to recruit. <laughs> yeah. So we tried that. And then one of the things that I felt like we did get some traction on was we started using intent data. So we were able to kind of get some signals ahead of time that people at hospitals were starting to research either telemedicine or it could just be like neurologists, those types of things. So we started having our business development team prioritize calling those folks instead of kind of going down the list. That helped find people at the beginning of their research process. Yeah. Good old fashioned ABM, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that's I like, that it. is like the perfect one-to-one -one ABM, right? Yes. <laughs> down and dirty. <laughs> I love yep, exactly. it. Exactly. I love it. It's fascinating. I mean, I would imagine that you had many experiences over the period of now three years, going on three years of kind of those gotcha moments of, oh yeah, okay, we've got to pivot. We've got to be pivot fast. Being flexible is the name of the game, Dana and I talk about. It's not day to day anymore. It's hour to hour, and you know, you just gotta like. just gotta roll with it. Yeah. Our, our, our yeah. contractor has COVID right now and our house is in a, is is a shit show and it's like what could he do? You just got to <laughs> just got to roll with it. He'll be back when he comes back, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Meg, let's talk about when we talked earlier, you had had some learnings around the BDR outbound strategy and kind of the results that you were seeing there versus the inbound having relevant content and SEO aligned and the leads that you were creating there. Is there some learnings there that you have or some anecdotes you can share? Definitely. Like I said, it was this kind of assumption that we were going to have this outbound team 
And at the end of the day, looking at the data, it just, the results were not good for outbound marketing for this particular audience. And it took one of my mentors outside the company to kind of point it out to me. We were Look, I was kind of complaining. I was like, we've spent so much time working on this business development program and it's just like, just not working. We're not bringing the leads in and it's just not justifying the cost of this. And he's like, well, what is working? And I showed him all my opportunity data and everything was coming in from the website. I mean, almost all of our leads were coming in as inbounds, either from the website. Sometimes people will call us still or email us, to, but mostly contact us forms on the website. And he looked at me and he was like, well, why don't you like double down on all of your inbounds and, you know, let's cut the outbound stuff. And it just seemed like such an obvious piece of advice <laughs> after looking at all the data and kind of going through this process for nine, 12 months. I mean, it was plenty of time to kind of come to some of those conclusions. So, yeah. So you did this elaborate fishbone analysis and then it just was a cocktail with a friend that was like, <laughs> and you were like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> like, why are you pulling your hair out of this? It's not working. <laughs> try all this stuff. Like, let's just cut bait and like try to do what's working, do more of what's working. So what's working is, and it has been like this for several years at the company. We have a great inbound machine and that that is comes from the content machine. We really, at the beginning of my time here at SOC, spent a lot of time building content, explaining what we do. I mean, acute care telemedicine is not something most people understand or know about. So lots of educational content and then uh, focusing a lot on our kind of weekly blog that we've been producing with all of our different service line chiefs and talking about the clinical, financial, operational benefits of for hospitals to use telemedicine. So all of that content paired with very rigorous SEO, I mean, weekly meetings with our SEO expert and constant optimizations and enhancements of the website. We have just blown it out of the park in terms of ranking on page one for all of our key terms at this point. I mean, it's just been a really fun journey to be on the success of the of the website and getting those searchers onto our website very efficiently. And then they read our stuff and fill out the form. And what we ended up doing with our business development team, our internal team, by the way, we did end up cutting the external team. It just, we couldn't justify a return on that. But our internal team, we pivoted them over to more of, well, first inbound. So they were taking all of the inbound phone calls and inquiries and following up and getting a discovery call set with the regional vice president for that territory. So as soon as that discovery call set, that was opportunity created very, I shouldn't say it's easy to track, but our systems were able to very efficiently track that process. So that's number one. And I would say they spent about a quarter of their time just handling the inbounds and scheduling those calls. We ended up sticking them on some of that account-based data and the intent data and doing a lot of research in order to kind of bubble up some of these kind of accounts that we thought were going to have a compelling event soon based on what we were seeing and helping get those out to the sales team and doing some kind of warming up, getting them into our nurture campaign. So we were able to pivot their roles into, again, what was working and really generating leads for the team. 
I love that. I think in, as marketers, sometimes we get something in our head that we have to check all the boxes, right? Like we have to do outbound. It's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have traditional BDR teams that are hitting the phones and calling, calling, calling. It's and it's so fascinating to me that like the learnings are saying otherwise. So why are we why are we hitting our heads against the wall if it's not working, right? That's great advice. Yeah. So yeah, we we do not have a BDR team now. We are relying on that, again, that content machine, that website machine to continue to bring in our leads and get them out to the sales team. Love That's it. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in addition to those tactics in the marketing mix, we know that you've done some unique direct mail campaigns in the past. <laughs> maybe maybe you can share a little bit of, of insight. And I think this, this may have been in a previous life where Dana was fascinated with the story that you told. This might have been the story I told her over that margarita. In, in I'm sure it was. <laughs> Many margaritas, ago. maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is one of my favorite pieces that, or I should, favorite campaigns that I've ever done. I was actually with Optum. This was a couple of companies ago. And I was, first of all, I started my career at Optum in direct mail. So I just, I love, I have a thing for direct mail. It's just so satisfying, first of all, to get something in the mail. And just now in this age of everything being digital, sometimes it's just so refreshing to receive something that's personalized that you can pick up and hold and read. Anyway, this was, I don't know, probably 15 years ago the Optum team decided to get into the accountable care business. And that was the time where the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid decided to create a new, they called it the ACO program, Accountable Care Organization. And that was an attempt to manage populations of patients and reducing costs at the end of the day. So it was really a pairing of both the insurance companies and the providers together to try to manage the care and reduce costs of a lot of chronic care patients. So as soon as Medicare released their first, I think it was 90 hospitals that were enrolled in this new program, it was a very innovative program. And I think the first folks were not at risk. So meaning they were not going to lose any money over this. Like in later iterations of these ACOs, they were kind of on the line for reducing cost of care or else they would have to cover the cost themselves. But the first ones, it was kind of like, hey, let's see if we can do this together. If you fail, it's okay. You won't lose any money. There's no risk on your part. So this is all publicly published data. We took that list of 90 some hospitals and we mailed them I can't remember where I saw this idea. I think I, I can't it. believe you found I these. Can't, I, I might have been in a hotel or something. They had these things called ecosystems, and it's a enclosed glass ball that had, you know, a little gravel at the bottom. It's about halfway filled with water, a little tree branch inside with some algae, and there's little baby shrimp swimming around inside. And it is a self-contained ecosystem. There's air, there's the plants, there's the animal inside. <laughs> anyway, it all just cycles and cycles and they say that they uh, the shrimp can live inside without this glass ball is like I said completely enclosed for three some three years. So what we did was we sent these eco spheres. We had uh, we had our Optum logo etched in the glass on the eco sphere, and we had them shipped to these ninety hospital CEOs who were the first Medicare accountable care organizations. And we were talking about the healthcare ecosystem. So that was kind of the 
the play on, you know, the ecosphere and the healthcare ecosystem and making a sustainable, sustainable ecosystem where it was affordable and patients were getting the high quality care that they needed and hospitals were able to stay viable. It was great, very unique, but there was also some challenges. And this is where I'm sure some of the humor comes in. When I got the first samples, I remember, you know, it comes in a box and it says perishable, you have to open it. And I remember talking to the folks and I was like, so what happens if you don't open it right away? It's not like, you know, a piece of chicken or something like that goes bad and grows mold. Like what happens? Like, well, if, if the shrimp don't have sunlight within two days of the box arriving, they're going to die. So it was kind of a, a last minute add on to the campaign. Not only were we shipping these cool boxes out, but we had to have a whole pre-campaign calling to the hospital CEO. And most of the time they have an executive admin. They're not answering the phones themselves and telling them, hey, there's a package coming for a hospital CEO. It needs to be opened right away. And of course, the next question was, well, well, what's inside it? And then we didn't want to like give up the surprise. We're like, well, it's a surprise. And they were like, no, you need to tell us what's inside it. Like, this is a little creepy here. (laughs) So a lot of the campaign actually revolved around us getting a hold of executive admins and kind of building the relationship with them. And it actually worked to our advantage at the end of the day because they were excited about it. They were like, what's in the box? And then when they got the box, they were like, oh, this is that box that person called and told me about. I want to check this out because most people have never even seen one of these things before. So they would get the ecosphere out, you know, it's it like the size of an eight ball and put it on their CEO's desk. So when he did arrive the next day or the next week, the ecosphere was waiting for him. I love that. And what a great strategy to penetrate the gatekeepers, right? You know, because the admins are the ones that decide what calls come in and what packages are delivered. So I love that. And we were able to kill it with the follow-up meeting schedule after this. We had already chatted with the EA and she's like, absolutely, let me get you on his calendar next week. I love it. Yeah. Meg, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, and we talked to Meg, too. People aren't going to throw them away, right? You kind of feel bad throwing yeah, away something can't. that's living it's for three years. So, you know, they're thinking of Optum on their desk every day. Like, I feel guilty. I'd be like, oh, I can't throw that away. Can I tell you the sample that I got myself? I had those shrimp for five years. They were alive for five years. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> I'm like, what do you think going to die? Because it does get a little funky after a couple of years. <laughs> it's not as pretty as when you first It's like the goldfish that doesn't die, that's like living for yes. 10 years at the fair. Like, why won't it die? We actually had a couple extras of these. I can't remember. We probably had a couple hundred of them produced just, you know, to take advantage of volume discounts. And so we had another hundred of them sitting in the warehouse and they would fill them up and seal them before they would ship them out. We had a handful of them sent to a trade show once and we put them on our trade show table just, and sure enough, people walking by would be like, what is that? And they would come over and like stare at them and ask us what it was. So it ended up being a great kind of thing to have in the trade show booth. But the only problem is a bunch of people thought they were snow globes. And we definitely had a couple people come up and like shake <laughs> them because all of the white gravel at the bottom. I was like, no, don't shake it. Don't shake <laughs> the shrimp. In there. 
Oh my gosh. I I still think though, that's like one of the most creative direct mail pieces. Like when you would, I think that's why I remembered it, Meg. Cause I was like, that was probably one of the most creative things I've ever heard. Very creative. It was a really fun project to work on. It's just so funny. There's just in your daily life, you see this cool stuff all the time. Right. And I'm sure I can't remember exactly where I saw one of those in my daily life, but it was like, that's so cool. And so unique. Like, I wonder if we could ship those, (laughs) but it is, I, I, there's things all around us that give us creative inspiration. And like I said, I'm a huge fan of direct mail, especially right now. We're definitely getting back into more direct mail in our account-based marketing programs. I definitely think direct mail has made a huge comeback. And I know there's a lot of providers out there that help make it easier, but just even aside from it, I think we actually have a meeting later today with a company who specializes in sustainable direct mail, which I think is so important these days with all the conversation around sustainability and people not wanting to get trinkets that just get tossed in the dump and add to more plastic and being creative with that too. So I just think there's a whole new a whole new market for it. So I agree with you. Oh my gosh. Well, that was fun. So many great things. All right, Meg. So as we kind of wrap up, Carrie and I have always have a fun couple of questions we like to do. So first off, just what are you working on right now? What are kind of some of the cool initiatives or not cool, but necessary initiatives as, as we kind of kick off the new year here? Yeah. Well, I guess top of mind for me right now is we are switching CRMs, <laughs> which is, you know, like, the lifeblood of all marketing teams and programs. So it's a little painful just to start, you know, new processes, new systems, having to redo some integrations. I know at the end of the day, it's all going to be worth it, but it is painful <laughs> to go through. I've been hoping to go back to salesforce.com for many, many years now because SOC has been on um, Microsoft Dynamics. So I'm finally getting what I asked for after all of these years. And I love it because all of my marketing tech all has native integrations with Salesforce. So it'll be great. Yeah. Once it's done, it's kind of like that remodel of the house, right? It's really (laughs) painful while it's going on as Karen is living through right now. But once it's done, it feels so good. (laughs) Yes, for sure. That's definitely happening. I'm trying to think what other big projects we're working on. I I would say just trying to get better at account-based marketing. We're using Terminus and that's also hooked into our CRM so that we can dynamically serve up ads to people inside our pipeline or customers. And we can do it based on what specialty that they're working with us on. So we have all sorts of cool upsell, cross-sell campaigns. Yeah, it just it's so funny. It sounds so basic. And there's so many just like details getting all of those things put together. So those are two of the big items we're working on. We love the details of technology migration. So (laughs) and ABM, there's nothing basic about it. Like what you're saying, it's, you know, if you're doing it, it's a commitment, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I would say the last thing, I mean, kind of new for me, because I'm a total like MarTech geek. I love trying new stuff. I've tried lots of new things over the past couple of years, but the latest one is called Plana. And it is a marketing expense management and kind of return on marketing investment tool that is really awesome. And I love, they call it Plana. It's P-L-A-N-N-U-H because they're from Boston. So, and it's funny, a lot of their marketing stuff has like wicked awesome and (laughs) Boston. (laughs) Ben Affleck cameos. (laughs) They'll get there. Is he on cameo? Because that's a good one. (laughs) 
<laughs> Probably not that he's with J Lo right now. Yeah, maybe right? before J Lo, he was in the cameo maybe, scene. Maybe, maybe Casey. Maybe Casey can be on yeah. it. We love, we love Casey. <laughs> oh my They've gosh. been fantastic. It's a former chief marketing officer who started that company, and they just get it. They get the expense management part, but then tying all of your expenses to campaigns, which are tied to goals, which are tied to metrics. All of that's happening inside this platform, which allows me to spit out a dashboard and say, okay, I spent $100 and the lead cost me $3,000, but it was worth $10,000. So being able to have that kind of revenue, like business value conversation with the C-suite is so important and it's hard to do. Like unless, I don't know, unless you have like the utopia of all of your marketing systems working together, which I've never met anybody who does, this is a great tool to have to have that financial conversation. You'll have love to keep that. us posted on that. That yeah, sounds like really exciting. That. Yeah. Yeah. Love to see some of those dashboards too. Yeah, Very cool. For sure. Good. Well, the last question for you, Meg, is kind of reflective. So if you met yourself when you were 20 years old and you had some advice, whether it be personal or professional, what advice would you give your 20 year old self given what you know now, not being 20? Oh, this is a good one. I have a couple. So I'm going to say one is take better notes. <laughs> I feel like I'm always like trying to be present and listen and make eye contact. And then what happens is like the meeting's over and I'm like, oh my God, what did he just say? I, I don't even remember. <laughs> and so notes, just like, I, I think it. I've learned that I'm not a really good like auditory listener or learner. And that I really need to like supplement me being in a room, being present with also, you know, taking that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it. That. Love it. And I would say the second thing is just to like be more confident to like speak up and ask questions in meetings. I think it's taken me a while in my career to get that confidence. You know, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to sound dumb and ask this question. But I would tell my younger self just to freaking do it. Like there's nothing to lose and there's a lot to gain by doing that. I think that's so true. That's a great one. Yeah, both great ones. I'm not great at the note taking either. I do the same thing. And then when I go to do the follow up, I'm always like, huh, yeah. what was I supposed to send them? I take a lot of notes, but I don't know what the fuck they mean when I go back to read it. It's just like, what was I thinking? What is, what what is, is that what word? Is I have that problem too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then somebody oh. will ask, can I get your notes for the meeting? It's like, do you really want them? Yeah. <laughs> sure, I'll share them. I can relate, Carrie. <laughs> yeah. I love oh. it. I love it. Well, what a pleasure this has been, this Meg. This has been fun. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Meg. It's been great. And thank you for your perspective on a vertical that we haven't been lucky enough to have on here yet. And so I think it's so great to have that perspective because I think you're in a little bit of a different world compared to some of the other marketers right now. And so it's been fascinating to gather all the learnings that I think apply everywhere, right? So it's been great. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was a lot of fun. And that's as real as it's getting with this episode. Thanks for joining hosts Dana Harder and Carrie Baldwin with Unreal Digital Group. In this podcast, Marketing Gets Real, where we get rid of the filters and chat with B2B marketers about real life stories of successes, failures, and everyday adventures. If you're loving these oh shit, tell it how it is type of conversations, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.